That was my ticket back to Australia and I put it in the back of the drawer and said, look, I'm not going to bail on this before the end of the season. Starting to get a bit stale. They were happy to have me. I was happy to do my job, but there was no real, there wasn't that passion there. Nobody was testing me. I remember thinking, don't get fourth or fifth, don't get fourth or fifth. I want to be on that podium. I want to be on that podium in Roubaix. On today's Roadman Cycling Podcast, I chat with Mr. Matthew Heyman. Let's cue that intro. The big question is this. How do we use cycling as a tool to improve our health, our happiness, and our longevity? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Anthony Walsh, and welcome to the Roadman Podcast. Roadman, welcome back to another Roadman Cycling Podcast. I am at this stage, hopefully nearing the ends of my Badlands Odyssey. I will be coming back to you live and in person from next week. Yesterday, Sarah put out a podcast, which was a little bit of an update on how my Badlands journey is going to date. So I'm hoping that it's going swimmingly. I'm hoping that this podcast isn't eerily coming to you from beyond the grave. Insert creepy noise here. All joking aside, it has been brilliant to be able to still bring you this podcast while I'm out exploring and creating new content to bring you on the podcast and create new stories and new memories. I boldly said on Tuesday that I think this is the strongest week we've ever had in terms of guests. The Steve Magnus interview on Tuesday, it was just absolutely phenomenal interview. The depth he goes into, the conversations around Alberto Salazar, who is our Michele Ferrari. It's just a fascinating insight. If you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend checking that one out. And now this episode, where to start? The Matt Heyman story is, it's the original David versus Goliath story. Matt crashed weeks out from Paris-Roubaix, probably the biggest one-day race on the cycling calendar, and he broke his arm. It looked like he wasn't even going to be able to take the start line. He tried an innovative indoor cycling technology for the first time. It was called Zwift. There was very few people using Zwift at the time. And he set about a pretty rigorous, unprecedented indoor training regime and program to get ready, to get race fit for Roubaix. He's not a sportif. He wanted to contend at the front of the bike race. He felt he was ready, but he wasn't sure. And he went into Roubaix with doubts, insecurities, and as a rank outsider, I can't remember, I think he was like 400 to 1, an insane outsider. So this is a story of someone coming back from broken bones and bludgeoned on the ground, but more than a broken body, a broken mind, and then coming into Roubaix and winning one of the biggest one-day races in the world. It's a phenomenal story. Matt's quite a reserved guy and it's a slow burn, so it does take time to get going, but I promise you this podcast is absolutely worth it. Let me please welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast, the legend, Mr. Matt Heyman. Matt Heyman, welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Thanks for having me. How was uh, life on the, I don't want to say life on the, the slower lane, but it's a little bit slower than the lane you occupied for 20 years. How's that going? Oh, actually, as a director, I'm not sure it is much slower. Um, <laughs> because, uh, I mean, as a rider... <laughs> Just less painful then. <laughs> yeah, it's less painful, that's for sure. Um, but uh, there's less less lying around hotel rooms and uh, it's it's quite busy when you when you're on as a director it's it's pretty full on uh, especially during the biggest the bigger races um, but yeah look also happy that I close that chapter and and I'm not out training and, and I'm not going through all that stuff that you know preparing for a season or or you know preparing for a grand tour uh, altitude training all that stuff that I've been through 
I'm happy that that chapter's been closed. Is it weird looking back? Does it seem like it was you or is it you look back on those wet days when you're looking out the window and you look at training peaks and you're like, oh, I have six hours to do. Does that feel real? Like, Yeah, it's it's funny now that, uh, that you can enjoy a wet day um, and there's a lot of sports you can do that aren't as uncomfortable as riding a bike in the rain. No, it is a bit of a different a different world for me now. Um, it, it's pretty far away. Like I, you know, that's four going on five years. So we're starting to, to yeah, I'm starting to forget. And I think that's the mind is the mind does well to forget pain quickly. <laughs> that's Alzheimer's, I think. If you're starting to forget, ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you forgot. Yeah, if I had to turn around and 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 knock out a a, a twenty thirty hour week now. Um, yeah, there's no one I couldn't do it, but going back to that routine and that, you know, that daily, you know, all, all the things you need to think and, and, and motivate yourself and, you know, I haven't had to do that for a long time now. I knew I was getting old when you retired because you were <laughs> one of those riders who was like around for my entire viewing pleasure of cycling. I was like, oh, it's getting bad when my Heyman's retiring. Because, you know, I watch you like as a young rider and even, you know, we'll get on to, you know, your career defining win a little bit, but I don't want to box a 20 year career, which I watched like almost all of it. I don't want to entirely just focus on, you know, one moment in time in Roubaix because there's, there's so many cool moments. Like even I'd love to know about uh, moving from your part of the world over in Oz to france as a junior because we weren't in an era of google maps and you know information i've heard crazy stories like stephen roach back in the day when he moved to his french team they got the days wrong and the director like didn't turn up to pick him up on the day he said so he had to like sleep with no money like homeless for the night outside yeah. a shop in like a little <laughs> just hut. it was a different era yeah look I, don't, I, don't, I think um you know the real pioneers before me were the uh, phil anderson and and piper and even stephen hodge neil stevens i was on the on the back of that and and things had started to you know we had telephones by then and and television and and mail service that worked um no look i mean by the time i i, I Started with uh, the Rubber Bank amateur team. I mean, I did a couple of trips with the national team as as a junior. Um, actually, probably my first ever trip was to visit my brother who was racing as an amateur in in Holland and Belgium. He was living in Holland. I didn't know your brother raced that level. I knew yeah. he raced and got you into it, but I didn't know he raced at that level. Yeah, well, he he never actually got the pro contract he was looking for. So he was he was knocking about in in you know got very close, and then yeah, you get you get three four years into the amateur scene there, and you've either got to get that pro contract or start working because you've just been you know buying bikes and traveling and and paying back mum and dad. Um, and the more you work, the less you're training and the less you're committed to that pro contract, you know, so it's a, a double-edged sword there. So I came over as a, as a probably as under 17, I think they call it now. Um, my first ever little trip over was in school holidays in Australia um, <laughs> and then came back for Junior World Championships, but they were all pretty short trips and pretty, you know, I was going straight to my brother's place and I was away with the national team. Didn't you roll uh, silver in the TT in the Junior Worlds? Yeah, I did. Yeah, that was uh, 96, 1996, uh, Novo and And that actually got me the start. Uh, I think we're in the same hotel as the Dutch team and that result actually got my foot in the door to join uh, the Rubberbank amateur team. 
Um, they were almost full and I got one of the last spots on the team, came over at the end of the year and they did some VO2 max testing and, and met with me and, and I got, yeah, pretty much the last spot. And it was the f- first or second year that they'd, they'd run the amateur team. And then, you know, every year that I was in that, I was in that amateur team for three years and, and guys were turning pro straight away out of that team. It was a pretty prolific uh, team that went on for a number of years and won a lot of bike races. And it's a nice part of your career, I'd imagine, because motivation's super high, but it's also, you haven't quite defined where the ceiling is. It's like, well, can I go and win a classic? Can I go and ride a Grand Tour? Can I win a Grand Tour? You know, yeah. It's that sort of naive yeah. naivety that youth has. Yeah, uh, both. So, yes, yes, I felt pretty invincible as an 18-year-old and and I started probably in my third year I started to, to win uh, a number of races. Um, but at the same time it was tough. I mean, I had... I really liked being away at the races, but at the same time, I went home to to my little apartment there, and I just sitting there looking at the wall. And, and sometimes I had weeks between races, and and I didn't really have anybody. My brother was doing his own thing; he wasn't, you know, I was by myself. And there was, you know, some mild depression there, and and I struggled with, you know, keeping my weight on on. And when you're racing on the flatlands of Holland and Belgium, it didn't matter as much. So yeah, it definitely wasn't an easy period, and and I really just lived for the racing. Um, the training was hard; uh, it was dead flat there. But I, I lived for the for the racing, and I really enjoyed being away with the team, and, and you know, send me to as many races as you could because that's where I was happy. Um, that's why I was over there. But yeah, by the end, the third year as an amateur, I was I was pretty cocky and confident when I look back at at that guy. Um, but yeah, then you turn pro and <laughs> had another thing coming. When I raced in France, one of the things that really struck me on that homesick uh, idea that I thought was so weird. I was used to living in a family house or having a, a bunch of people around the house. And then I was living in France with one housemate, but oftentimes he'd be away with the national squad. So I'd be rushing out the door because the director go to pick me up and I'd have a coffee half drank and cereal half eaten and I'd leave them on the kitchen counter. And then he'd pick me up and I'd go to a stage race and I'd come back a week later and the coffee cup was still there <laughs> and the cereal still there. It's like a moment frozen in time. Yeah. And I don't know why, but that just made me feel so homesick. It's like, there's nobody here that like... Mm cares or there's nobody like I could die in this apartment and no one would figure out for a couple of days yeah yeah it was it was it was pretty isolating and and pretty lonely there um later on I had a teammate come and spend some time but even he bailed most of the time and had to go you know it was only (laughs) an hour and a half from his house and uh and and he couldn't handle it for for long periods it was a bit of a share house and we had some international students there we even had some you know just some foreign workers coming in and out um, yeah, so it was a bit of a bit of a strange period, you know. I look back on it that it was a, a journey and a, a rite of passage to to turn professional. And I, I remember the old paper aeroplane tickets that you had to tear off, you know, when you did each leg, like the original. <laughs> and I had that, and that was my ticket back to Australia. And I put it in the back of the drawer and said, "Look, I'm not going to bail on this before the end of the season. And whatever date was on that ticket, I'm not going to leave before then. I'm not going to look at it." But yeah, you close the door at night and, and there was no one else there. Um, so they were tough years. But yeah, I lived for the racing and, and really enjoyed the racing. And the team was phenomenal. Like it was a great team to be on. Uh, Nico Verhoeven was a director there, um, among other guys. But he really taught me how to race and, and taught our whole team how to race. And he, and he had really talented riders. So he was pretty, uh, it was a, a bit of an art to balancing all of these egos, um, letting everybody have a go. 
uh, win a lot of races, and he really, you know, drummed it into us that it was all about winning, um, and that's that's all it was, you know, because you know, at the time the, the professional team was was more, you know, just about um, often doing the right thing, riding on the front a lot, committing to to bringing back breaks, yeah. but not always winning. And and he struggled with that when he was when he had the amateur team, but you know, he had super talented riders and. And we would always, you know, try not to ride on the front. That was our goal. We were never chasing, but we were always winning. So that was, uh, you know, I felt almost that when I turned pro, we went backwards in the tactics somewhat. Did you work on the mental side much then or did you put any importance on it? Like I know I find old training diaries sometimes and I used to use a, even though training peaks and stuff was around, I'd use a paper diary as well. Mm. But I'd, I'd often have like the first couple of pages and it'd be like what I thought the season would pan out like at the start of the season. Do you have any like inkling of to where this journey could lead in those sort of naive early years? Oh look, I, I was pretty sure I was I was going to be good, um, but I don't know where that really came from. Like now that I look back and I see my career after riding against some you know the most talented guys in the world, and um, I don't think I had that much talent really. I mean, maybe that's from the outside. You might think that's that's strange to say that, but yeah, it seems like you got to have a lot of talent to get to work. <laughs> yeah. But then you just you start comparing yourself to to the best, you know, to the Oscar Freiras yeah. and, and to these other guys, as Fabian Cancellara, Tom Boonen. That's who you compare yourself to, and you're like, well, I'm not even close to these guys. Like, what is it that separates them? Is that just total? Like, everyone loves this debate, and it's yeah. you know almost an antiquated debate of like nature versus nurture. Yeah. But being up close to these guys, because very few people get that chance. Like the guys will be talking about them, riders you just named, Boonen. We'll be talking about them in a hundred years' time. Yeah. Uh, once they've managed to create my brain and implant it into some sort of cyborg that lives forever, mm. I'll still be talking cycling in a hundred years' time. What is it about them, lads? Yeah, I think they have. Um, I think one of the big things is they can really deal with pressure, uh, and, and that's a mental thing. Whether whether you've got that and you're just going to be a winner and and that's it, and you're able to take that pressure on and 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 live with it. Um, for me, like some of the things that I've seen Tom do, where he just goes all in. On, on winning, either uh, being unpredictable and not just using the same tactic and pulling the same card every time. I think, um, yeah, some of those guys have, have that ability to really, you know, I'm, I remember the Doha Worlds that he put the whole team on the front in a breakaway and I was just thinking, well, he was against the who's who there and just went, oh, I'll take I'll take the way to Belgium. I'm going to finish this off. I'm going to be world champion. Um, there's not many people, you know, make that call. Well, I wouldn't, you know. Um, I might make it for somebody else to say this is the best way to win the race, but to make it for yourself is a big one to say, yep, no, I'm about to do this, I'm going to do this. Even making those calls real time on the road, like I think I always look at the road captains and think there's a special skill set you need to be a road captain. It's easy to plan in a conference room or a home mm. in your living room or in team bus before. Mm -hmm. Mike Tyson famously said everyone has a plan until someone punches you in the face. <laughs> yes. And that's what the bike race is. It's the fog of war and it's like oh, trying yeah. to get the troops organized yeah. in the fog of war and communicate effectively a clear, concise plan is a serious talent. Yeah, look, uh, and there's, you know, I've been on both sides. I've, I've been road captain. I think it's a lot easier as road captain because you've got a lot more information. I mean, I can see all the riders. I can feel how fast it's going. And, and that was a big thing going to director, that you just got a lot less information. You've got a camera view sometimes in the car, whether the television's working, not working, whether the internet's on or not. Um, whether it's even live, you know, you can be doing a smaller race and you have no idea what's going on. Um, as a rider, you kind of had an idea. You could, you know, definitely by that point, if you're road captain, you could 
sense the guys around you and, and you had an idea of, of their form. And I think it's easier to make those calls and, and it, it takes a lot of effort and, and, you know, you're just putting the team first. What is the best possible way? How can we perform to get the best possible result for our team? Today could be actually to do nothing or, or, or try to win or, or whatever we're doing, how do we get to that point? Um, which I then struggled to go back to that and then ride, you know, and, and it was Roubaix and, and a few other classics that, that the team would turn around and say, okay, now it's for you. And I've just spent the first couple of months and the rest of the year, I'm only worried about what everybody else is doing and not really. And, and I find, found it a lot easier to put myself in a position for somebody else than, than for myself, um, which, you know, I think somewhere between those amateur years and the first five years as a pro um, is where that, kind of went from just scrapping, I want to be pro, I'm going to be pro, I've got to do whatever, I've got to win races to turn pro. And then once I turned pro, was like, okay, now I need to make a, a career out of this and what's the best way to do that is is to be a good domestic. Yeah, it's interesting. I used to train with Mike Barry, who I know you were teammates with at Sky. I used yep. to train with him a bit and he coached me when I was living in Toronto. And Mike was saying that was like, that's the big shift that he was talking to me when I was Conti and he was like, now you got to start thinking, okay, what is my role within the team and how can mm. you niche down into that mm. role? And for him, it was, he said, anytime there was a discussion on who was going to ride the front, who was going to ride crosswinds, who was going to bring jackets back to the car, who was going to get bottles. He was like, first man with hand up, first yeah. man with hand up. Yeah, you want to make yourself the first guy picked. You want to make yourself when they look at the roster. And I, and I saw a lot of young, young talented riders and, you know, I'll probably say Dutch because I was in that cycle as, as an amateur and then into the pros and, and they would just, you know, back themselves in for one or two years. And if you back yourself in and ride as a bit of a dick, but you don't get any results, that only lasts two or three years and you're gone. So, you know, and, and I made a decision early on that, you know, I wanted to be a really good domestic and and, and that turned into road captain uh, later on in my career, definitely not at the start, um, but it was just do as much work. And exactly what Michael said, find find work. Just find something to do and, and be productive for the team and, and, and be help, always helping the team and, and hopefully keep your job. Do you look back at your World Tour top rank for almost 20 years, two decades, do you look back and think it was quite a special time in cycling? I know chatting to Svein Tuft on this recently on my Side Hustle podcast over on Cyclist Magazine. Svein, doesn't, he's not 100% sure he would have been a pro in any other era, that he just got this beautiful sweet spot mm. that allowed him to kind of express himself and give him the freedom to be him and all his quirks and idiosyncrasies. He's not sure he would have made it in the new Remco Evenpoel style peloton. Mm. I mean, I think there was, there was a bit of a shift and, um, yeah, and I think... Sveno also kicked on on riding his bike and 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 you know, I think he found our team too, which is um, you know, Orica Green Edge or the Green Edge family and and other teams that accepted Sveno for who he was and, and valued his personality and what he brought to a team outside of what he could ride. You know, there's a lot of hours where where you know you need good people um, to build a team. You need good culture. Uh, and Sveno definitely, um, you know, when guys were getting too big for their boots, you know, he just said it how it was and, and uh, <laughs> you know, uh, he's a guy that rode to his first training, you know, train. or you'd, you'd go to a race and uh, I remember I think we were in somewhere in the mountains and we are waiting for the bus to leave and someone's like, where's Sveno? Oh, he's in the creek there in minus two degrees just having a bit of a bath before he got on the bus. So he was definitely special but... <laughs> You know, it just made us realise that, you know, there's different ways to do things and, and uh, he, he's a guy that's pretty hard. 
Yeah, look, the start of my career uh, was tough. Uh, the guys were racing super fast. Um, and then then by the end of my career, you look at the talents that are coming through and, and I'm talking about doing three years as an amateur. Now, guys are getting picked off as 19-year-olds. As um, so, so, and I thought I trained pretty hard as an, uh, to get that silver medal at the Junior World Championships. I was doing, you know, um, through the Australian Institute of Sport and all, all of the development that we'd done on track cycling and road cycling, you know, I had a, a regional coach and we were doing six, seven, eight hundred K weeks as a as a junior and I was going to school. So I thought that I had a, a, you know, a pretty high training level and standard, but to see what these guys now, that they can be, you know, 19, 20-year-olds and, and they're rocking up at Grand Tours, there was no no question that I wasn't ready for a Grand Tour until for a long time after that. And then and the the fact that you have to go to altitude now almost. I mean, I don't know many riders that survive without doing blocks at altitude. So, yeah, it's really changed. But like, I wonder now with the new way they're picking riders, like I came from a football background, a soccer background, depending on where you listen to the podcast, mm. and a really regrettable trait that I've seen so many of my friends fall into, and honestly, I chased it for a long time as well, the clubs in England will bring across kids, but the kids drop out of school to go across. So you're 15, 16-year-olds. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a lot of guys who are, you know, no doubt outstanding talents and they go on to be have great careers. Yeah. But that's a very small fraction oh, compared for sure. to the number of kids they bring over. So they bring over like 10 kids and of those 10 kids, maybe one makes it, maybe none make it. But there's no thought or empathy in this business model for the 10 kids that don't make it. It's just that's 10 broken lives. That's 10 lads down the pub with some mental health issues, dropped out of school, no education. Like, I'm wondering, is this a good twist? Is this a good road we're going down in cycling? Or are we just going to create some superstars like Remco but shatter a lot of people that we weren't previously doing? Um I mean, the right answer is it's not a good road, and 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 we should be giving everyone more time to develop. But it's it's the new way, and if these guys are able, if you knew Tour de France winner and you knew Grand Tour, and you know the classics are still a little bit older, but if it's 23, 25 year old, you can't wait till somebody's twenty three to start scouting them as a talent. So we, you know, and and I think if you if you stay behind and you're left behind and you're not picking up these talents and you're not on to the next. 18, 19 year old who has the potential to win a grand tour. Um, you're not doing the team and the sponsors a service. So it's high performance and it's the pinnacle of the sport. And um, that's the way it's going. And it's been like that in football for many years, I believe. You know, that's there's no yeah. it's not it's not a long, long time. Yeah, it's not for many years there's been families that are up and moved to whatever city it is that they want to be near the football club and and they're in the under elevens or something and the whole family's there because Johnny could uh, start for Barca. You were lucky enough to be part of one of those. We've had these you know, inflection points in cycling and some of them have been bad inflection points and some of them have been great technological inflection points. Mm. I feel like 2009 and the start of Team Sky yeah. was an inflection point in cycling. Yeah. And I remember again chatting with Mike and he was saying going to early races in skin suits. Yeah. The guys were just flat out laughing yeah, yeah, yeah. at him going like, to stay at this guy. No, I'm, I'm very happy that I was able to be a part of that team and, and uh, it was the right time for me. I'd done... 10 years at Rubberbank and that's three years as an amateur as well. So, and I was starting to get a bit stale. They were happy to have me. I was happy to do my job, but there was no real, there wasn't that passion there. Nobody was testing me. Nobody was seeing how far I could go. And, 
and everybody was just always happy, you know, there was no real, you know, so I needed a change and it wasn't easy for me to change. Um, it was a hard decision, but, you know, looking back, um, it was a, it was a really cool to be there right at the start. And, you know, I remember thinking that, you know, as I said, I'd come from the Australian Institute of Sport and, and the regional academies and, and it was all science-based and, you know, it pulled some stuff from from how the, the Russians used to train or the East Germans, that kind of, you know, really hardcore and just, you know, really break the athletes down. But it was also science-based as well. And, you know, Australia had become really successful uh, in, in most Olympic sports through through this training program. And I felt like going to Sky that I found a lot of that you know, when I went to Rubberbank, you went back in time, as in you went back to the traditional part of cycling. And and if you've yeah. raced in France, you'd know they put cordial in your bottle or syrup or whatever it was. I mean, this was, you know, and it was just eat this. And th- there wasn't a lot of science, you know, it was train X amount of hours. Those little jelly things you get wrapped yeah. in the tinfoil. Yeah. Jesus, I get PTSD thinking about them. So, you know, and I'd come from juniors where I was doing interval training and, and everything was really structured um, and, and, and quite scientific um, to, to go into a pretty traditional sport for, for so many years. And then to see that back at Sky was really nice to say, oh, here's people there just trying to break this sport down, look at it in a new way, do everything only do something for a reason. And um, no, I was able to reinvent myself. I was able to come into a new team and, and you know, make a new first impression and, and set, you know, my ambitions higher and, and people believed in me and, you know, I had a really, really good time. And, you know, we, we talk about Team Sky, but we were pretty ordinary the first couple of years. We, we, were, we, were quite, we didn't win that many races. But you still did have that big vision because didn't Brailsford come out and say the goal was to win... Yep the tour within five years yep. with a British base rider yeah. and everyone was like, you you've literally lost your mind. Yeah. Like, yeah. No, hundred percent. And, and, and then they did it. They get in three years. Yeah. What Bradley win it? 2013. Yeah. 2012. Yeah, 2012. Three years. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the first two years we, we actually had a pretty good, uh, classics team and a pretty good sprint team there with, um, with Boas and Hagen, with, uh, Henderson, with, uh, Chris Sutton, and uh, and then across with with G, who was doing the classics, Geraint and and uh, Ian Stannard, Ben Swift, and we we had a lot of fun there, and we were actually quite successful on that side. The climbers weren't doing so well. It took them another couple of years, and then then the team really took over as more of a climbing based team and, and GC based. But first couple of years, and and all that innovation that you talk about, and and some of it, I'm pretty sure was just which is which Dave is is really good at was. You know the, the psychology of it. You tell these guys, and you make them believe that they have the best of everything, and that they are the best, <laughs> and they will be. I mean, I'm pretty sure our you know hydration strategy before warm stages was was just a bottle of water with some pineapple juice in it. But it wasn't called a bottle of water with pineapple <laughs> juice. It was called a pre-race hydration strategy. You know, um, and and wearing those skin suits, yeah, it made us feel silly, but it also made us feel fast. And we were getting laughed at, but we felt different. And we felt, and every time they gave you something and said, "This is new. This is the fastest," and you believed it. Um, so, you know, I think it was it was good to to be there and 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 to go through that um, through that period. Do you think if you made the move in two thousand and nine to a different team, not Team Sky? that you knock another decade after that out of being a pro? Um, yeah, look, I mean, uh, going way back, uh, there's there's a pro told me about who was talking about changing teams and, and, and going from different teams and 
they said, you know, like it looks like there's a whole bunch of teams out there, but when you narrow it down, how many teams would you actually ride for? Um, so often, you know, that's why a lot of guys stay on the same team for so many years. Um, so, yeah, while while it was it was Sky and and it was a bit of a leap of faith because it was a brand new team and that's not something and that's not in my personality to you know I want someone else to test the waters first and um, and it took a bit of a bit of emotional energy to to go into a new environment to learn all these new people. I felt comfortable on the other team. I was getting paid. You know why why not why upset the apple cart? But uh, yeah, there's not that many teams that that I would have ridden for and and. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I, I don't know what would have happened if I'd uh, changed that decision. Couldn't have seen Matt Heyman on movie star now. I think. <laughs> oh, look, there's, there's been, they've turned more Anglo-Saxon. Well, you know, there's, there's a, it's not as Spanish as it used to be. Let's just say that. Um, I think I, it might change a bit more when Valverde. Yeah, uh, disappears at the end of the season. Yeah. So yeah, look, I think, uh, but but as you said, I think it was a a bit of a turning point in the sport. Um, and and it became the new kind of benchmark, and you know, and whether whether Jumbo Visma's done that now or not, uh, but let's just say it, it's great to see that that you just got to keep innovating, and if you stand still, you're left behind. I wonder, are we past the time of the twenty year careers, like the, <laughs> the level that Roglic is asked? And yeah. these Jumbo Visma lads, the level of detail, the altitude training, and the sacrifice that mm. goes in, you know, the bits of the public don't see, you know, the toll on your family, the toll on your relationship mm. with your missus. Like, is that all sustainable on 20-year careers with the level they're doing it at now? Well, there's two things there. Um, the first one, I remember Michael Rogers talking to me after, I'm pretty sure he's part of that first first win by by Bradley and... He just said, oh, this is going to turn into a young man's sport if that's what you have to do because he just did all the altitude camps. They had to do them all together. Um, so they were all there together for months on end in the same hotel and he, he said, you can do that one or two years but I don't know if guys are going to be able to do this 10 years straight, you know, and and if you definitely what you just said, if you've got a family, wife and kids, um, I will say that the racing calendar has been reduced. We we were racing a lot, um, a lot more. So when you turn, when I turn pro, you know I can't guarantee it, but you know ninety, hundred days was more normal, um, and now it's it's sixty. You know, but now you have to do ninety, another 70, 80 days at altitude in in the season. So that's one side of it, and the other side is those names you mentioned too are. Are not the guys that are going to have twenty years careers, and and I talked with Tom Boonen about this um, when he was going to retire. He said, "Yeah, look, I'd love to ride for a few more years, and you know, like you, and uh, just keep riding. But it's he can't, you know. There's an expectation of a level. He couldn't take half his salary and just ride around. So he's either winning or you're moving on. Um, so when those guys that you mentioned, you know, earning that kind of money." The expectation and where they need to be in the bunch and what they need to be doing. Um, you know, maybe Robert Keesink, he's he's got a pretty long career and and you know, he's one of the last guys who's been right at the top and has been able to reinvent himself as as a really good Yeah, Philip Gilbert springs to mind as well. Yeah, and Gilbert reinvent themselves as a good domestique and still be around the mark. But yeah, just it's it's hard for those guys that are at that level and and they're on the big contracts for X amount of wins per year to 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 then, you know earn a bit less and just ride around. Yeah, Froomey reinvented himself as a domestic. <laughs> yeah, let's see. Well, I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't write Chris off. Uh, 
Yeah, I think he'll still he'll still surprise a few. There's there's a guy that's uh, deeply motivated. I think everyone was rooting for him on Alptoes yeah. this year against Bidcock. Yeah. Uh, let's talk 2016. Uh, it's Omlemp had new spots. You lived in Holland, so I probably butchered that pronunciation. Omlemp had new spots. Nicely done. You hit the deck and you go down and you know it's not good. What's the immediate sort of thought process here? Is it just another crash or is your head already flicking to the calendar and going Roubaix? Uh, look, it's, yeah, when I knew it wasn't good and it was like pretty much first classic. So, you you know, you got Newsblood and Colonel Brussels Kerner the opening weekend and you still got to go away and do Paris-Nice or Torino and then and then the rest of the classics come. And, you know, I'd, I'd missed the move in, in that race and almost got across with a couple other guys and got caught. And it was just like out of position or whatever. But I was like, okay, the legs are there. I'm actually, I'm moving really well. And again, I I had just done uh, an altitude block in South Africa. Um, That was with pretty much the whole team at at, uh, Green Edge. And and we'd done, I think, 14 days or maybe even a bit more. And all of that time and all of that effort and and knowing that you got to where you needed to be. And, And that process starts in November. So that was, you know, the disappointment, like that's it. You know, I get to feel these good legs, didn't even make the move, got halfway across and, and my classics is over and I've been training, you know. So that starts training back in Australia, doing six-hour six rides and most of them are by myself um, and, you know, just all those mental battles with yourself and then going, doing all the attitude, being away from the family and that was pretty much a disappointment. I wasn't even going to get to do the classics. I look back now at how popular Zwift is. <laughs> and I, I hope they gave you shares in Zwift for that because it's the first time I ever thought, what what the hell is this computer game? Like, yeah. how genuine was that? Did you actually train on Zwift or was that like a, a shameless promo? No, 100%, 100%. So uh, <laughs> Bobby Bobby Julik, who was coaching me at Sky for a little while, he knew these guys from Zwift and, you know, so he wasn't my coach anymore, but he was sending me some messages, saw what happened and, and he said, "Look, uh, if you you know if you really want to get on the trainer, you need to try this thing." So um, I didn't. Uh, this was maybe after a week. So the first couple of days I got on the trainer, just looking at the brick wall, and it was pretty ordinary. Um, and then I, <laughs> I balanced the laptop on top of the hot water system, and and I didn't even have a smart trainer, and it wasn't you know calibrated or anything. And just you know I just had the the power on there, and it was just a little thirteen uh, inch MacBook. And it was just amazing how much more time you could spend on there just, just because you had that interaction you're following. And, and we're talking about Zwift back when it was, oh, when I'd log on, I'd be lucky if there was 100 people. And we used to have blue bots riding around as well. They were just, you know, and we're talking about having on Motopia, we only had about five or six different laps. I think like for people listening there that have just got into cycling recently, it's hard to impress upon them how bad those old school trainers were. Yeah. Like it was like stuck in sand. You'd get your half a pedal stroke down and it's like yeah. Whoosh, yeah. trying to pull it back up again. It was like riding on the beach. Yeah. So yeah, and I, it was just a flywheel trainer that I had and it wasn't wasn't going. So it was just taking the power off off the off the SRM. And I started riding around and and I started doing these double sessions and and my coach, um, uh, Kevin at the time, he he was just watching these sessions and you know, and they were all intense. And like you said, riding in sand. So all I did was ride in sand for an hour and a half in the morning and ride in sand for an hour and a half at night. Um, I didn't even have a fan on. So I was sweating bullets. My heart rate was through the roof. Um, so if I knew what I know now, like, 
now I have a widescreen TV. I have a smart trainer so I can feel the hills and, and everything. And this was just on a, you know, a, a little a little MacBook and, and didn't have all the gear and no fan. The heart rate was through the roof. And I think that was part of it as well. So I had this big base. I'd done all that work in Australia and, and in South Africa. I was at a really good level and I was just topping it up. And, and that was probably the bit that I would have would normally miss out on. Uh, I wasn't a guy that really, you know, getting on in my career, what was I, 37, 38, I didn't like doing interval efforts all the time. I don't mind riding my bike for five hours, but doing intervals hurt. So all I was was touching on this on the interval side, morning and night, um, you know, three days on, one day easy. And, uh, and yeah, I think it, it, it's what I actually needed. I do remember one of my uh, coaches or doctors right at the end of my career, so I retired in, in uh, Tour Down Under in 19, and he said, if we really want to know if it was the home trainer, you should retire in Down Under and just do home trainer until Roubaix, and then we'll know for sure. <laughs> then we'll know for sure. So, But, yeah, I, I definitely think it helped. Were you looking better power figures then when you got back out on the road than you previously had been? Did you have different sensations? Oh, on the road, 100%, 100% on the road. I came out feeling super strong. Um, so two things. Uh, on the home trainer, no. I was struggling to get the power up. It took a long time. I was, you know, as I said, I wasn't using a fan, so I was overheating in most sessions. The heart rate was through the roof. So I was really struggling to hit those powers. And, you know, in some of the longer efforts, I was going all right. So I was probably pushing myself pretty hard to try and hit those 400, 420 watts, which used to be my threshold, and I'd had to screw it back for all these efforts. And then I went out on the road and I've stayed on the trainer probably a week longer than I than I would have normally because it was it was going so well. All the feedback from the coach was it was going well. And I did a one longish road ride um, in the Ardennes with with a few of the a few of the other guys, I think Kelderman and maybe even Tom Dumoulin and, and Jos van Emden and a few guys. We did five, six hours. And I started doing a couple of efforts there. And this is the first time I've been on the road for like four and a half weeks, five weeks. And I felt really good. And, you know, it felt awesome. And then I did the weekend before Roubaix, I went to Spain and I did two one-day races. And uh, and both times I was putting out, you know, season best five, 10-minute powers, 30-second powers, powers everywhere. Um, and it was all coming, you know, you know, a week before I'd been on the home trainer. I think that, you know, the pedal, pedal efficiency and everything, you know, you're using all those other muscles and, you know, just to, to get through those dead spots and everything. So you're going into Roubaix, probably a little fresher than you would have went in if you hadn't have crashed. Yeah. But you've had this beautiful period of intensity again, which you wouldn't mm. have had. So it's, it's coming together nicely for you. Mm. But going in on the day, do can you remember thinking, you know, you were a good classics rider, you were a good Roubaix rider, but, but <laughs> I don't think you're one of the bookies' favourites. No. I think it's fair to say. <laughs> and I remember you costing me a bit of money that day. Yeah. I had money on Boone and coming to the line. Yeah. Um, look, uh, so on the Wednesday we did the recon and uh, all the other guys came out of Flanders. So they're all a bit, a bit pinned and they'd all been battered around for the last three weeks in Belgium. They're all probably ready to go home. Um, and we had a couple of scooters there because it's sometimes it's a headwind and we, we want to do 150, 160K of Roubaix and there's a lot of sections between the cobbles. So we had a couple of Belgian guys come down with their scooters and ride between the sectors just to give the guys a bit of, just stay light on the pedals. So we get to see the cobbles, but it's not a big day. And, um, and I remember Kev saying to me, I needed a really big day. You know, I'd, I'd done a good weekend in Spain, but, and, and look, the, to be honest, the team almost wasn't going to, wasn't going to let me start. You know, they were still like a bit unsure whether I'd be able to start or not. 
Um, and yeah, so when we we're doing the we we're doing the recon, um, I didn't use the motorbikes at all. I was just hanging off the back, and I was just I could feel that I was just eating it up. So this gave me confidence, but like you know that okay, I'm feeling all right. I'm feeling good. That's better than not feeling good and being at Roubaix. But no way in in the world that you know. And I got an email from Kevin the night before the race or, or the morning. He he'd come over to watch it and. He said, "Be confident. Like you, the, the numbers you're putting out are, are some of your best ever. You know, and and you've got experience just because you didn't race the last few weeks in Belgium. But it was really weird to roll out of Compania and see all these guys that I hadn't seen. You know, they've been they've been on this, you know, like on a school trip together for the last two weeks, and and I was the odd one out. Like I hadn't been there. Uh, I didn't know <laughs> any of the stories. I didn't know who was going super well." Because normally you've got an eye on, and you can you know who you're getting dropped with, and you kind of know where everybody's at. Of course, I was following the racing, but it's not the same as being in the bunch. And um, it was super weird. And and uh, short answer, there's no way in the world I thought I was. You know, I was hoping the wheels didn't fall off. I was hoping I could get to, and I was happy to be back, and I was happy to ride my race. You know, I really really enjoyed riding that race. Um, and it was probably, you know, that not having that pressure and putting that pressure on myself was was also what I needed because, you know, those other results that I'd got there, top tens, you know, around the mark, you know, I really felt the pressure for the weeks going in. This was the one day of the year that I ride for myself and I and I need to do it. And I've chatted with big George Hincapie on the podcast who absolutely loves Roubaix as well, but he never mm. got that big W there. And he was saying for him that the advice he gives to people in Roubaix is just keep going. Like you never know what misfortune someone else is up. Like if, if you flat, it's like, okay, maybe yeah. you go up the roads after flatting twice. Maybe there's a crash yeah. up the road. Maybe just, you know, so it's like, just keep going. So when you're going in on the day and I, I can't remember who the director of sport was that day. Was it Matt Wise? Uh, Manny Wilson and uh, Lorenzo Lepage. You're going in with a battle plan, <laughs> but how did the day plan out? Like, did you have a battle plan and you just executed on it, you know, job done? Or was it just, you had plan A and you ended up on plan L and O and M. So Luke Durbridge and uh, Jens Kukler had been riding pretty well and they were, you know, the protected riders. Um, and I was honest in the meeting and said, look, I'll see how far I'm going and, you know, if I can feel the legs are, are falling off, I'll get in and help out. And But, you know, I don't really want to be first in the firing line. I think I've got a lot of experience here and, you know, I'm actually moving okay. I, I think I can get to the final or, or around there and then help those two guys out. And I went to Maddie Wilson the night before and I said, oh, I'm thinking about actually going in the move. You know, I think that's probably a good idea to be out the front. And, you know, if it still hasn't gone for a long way. And he was a bit like, yeah. And it is a catch-22 because the closer you get to the first section of cobbles and you get in their move, you don't really get enough time for it to be effective. And we've been racing for a long time. And the guys that have been, you know, Magnus Court, I think uh, Mitch Docker and a couple others, they've been just going with, there have been a couple of big, big moves go and we'd miss one and we got in the other one and, and you know, it was pretty full-on full on start, as it often is, not always, but often is. And then, yeah, I just, uh, uh, Durbo tells a story that I just sat up, took my jacket off, gave it to the car and just went, whoosh, go down the road um, <laughs> and actually didn't realise that, uh, that Magnus was already in that move and, and we ended up away with 21, 22 riders and Magnus was in there and, Magnus said to me straight away, "I'm I'm not I'm not up. I've I've already you know I've already used up a lot of energy trying to get in this move, and I hadn't. And so then just went from there. And um, you know, I'd had some 
experiences from before where I tried to think 211. I was there with uh, Van Sumere and I felt really good in the final and I started attacking early and I started closing things and doing doing all stuff I shouldn't have. So the big thing for me was, look, you're coming back, just wait, wait for the guys to come. Jens and, and Luke will come later. This is perfect. You're going to get through Arenberg. You're going to get through a bit of the shit and then you'll be in the final. And that was all I was thinking. I wasn't trying to push on. I was like, when you get caught, you get caught. And, uh, and yeah, luckily I didn't get caught until just before she's and Durbo was there and, uh, he said, how are you feeling? I said, yeah, good. And I started attacking again, which probably a bit silly. And then on the very next sector, he got a puncher. So then, you know, we're down to 25 riders or something and, and I was alone again. So then I just started following wheels. So at that moment, are you like the mentality's flicked from, I can be in the final and do a good job for Durbo or Kukler, whoever comes across, to, okay, it's it's Matt's day. Yeah, you know, it's me and just worried about when the legs are going to fall off. Like, okay, ticking by 180, 200, okay. No, this is this is long for when I've got all, you know, when I've done all the classics, anything over 200, you're starting to go, okay, it can be any moment then. And the big, one of the first selections was, um, I think, on Mine Pavel. You know, made a real decision to to move when some guys started moving. It was all together there and Tom had already, you know, done a few big efforts because he was a bit isolated, wanted to get rid of guys. I'm not sure if it was Ian or, or Sepp might have gone on Mon Pavel. And uh, by the end of Mon Pavel, I was kind of waiting and, and, I re- and I said, oh, I'm going to go. So I actually went and, and when we come off there, um, it was the same five guys that went into the velodrome. Now, a lot of guys came back. So who was that? You, Boonen, Sepp van Mark, Edvard Bosenhagen and Stannard. Yeah. So the, coming off that sector there was, was exactly the same guys and that's like 70K to go or something. So it came back together. And then again, just before um, Cafu de Labre, we had another big big surge and, and, and it whittled its way down again. And like it almost looking at it, and I, I watched it back this morning, I think you had, as a viewer, it looked like you had better legs than you knew you had. Because yes. once or twice you were gapped and with the expectation the race was going to go away and then it's just like, oh, hold on, I could easily ride back across to that. And it looks like you ride back across fairly effortlessly. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I just kept... You know, uh, I'm thinking of the Dutch word now, verbas myself. Um, I kept surprising myself with with my own form. So, yeah, Ian came underneath me on on, uh, on uh, Carrefour de Labra. I lost the wheel and that's when Sepp was doing his big effort. And I thought it was done. I thought, oh, here we go. And I was wondering what was behind me and I was thinking, oh, I'm, this always happens to me. This is my lot in life, you know, <laughs> get, get to the last, you know, run off the road on the last sector, last hard sector. And I thought, no, nah, not today, just see, you can't, there's no harm in trying. And I'll just sort of chug along and next minute I caught those guys. And that's when it, that was the first time because that was the end of the last hard sector. We'd had it, we'd had um, Carrefour de Labre. That's when I kind of thought, okay, now, I, now I've got a bit of a chance and that's when I started really growing confidence. Okay, we're only 10K from the finish now. The legs aren't going to go anywhere. Well, everybody's tired. But, you know, I'd, I'd done enough classics to know you can stand up once in a classic and sprint and then that's it. The next time you can't get out of the seat again, you know. So you're just never sure what the, you know, one effort's not the next effort. So, but, you know, I got to that point and I felt like, okay, we've, we're through all the hard stuff now. And I started to ride a bit smarter than I, I probably, you know, I'd been playing the card. I'd been in the break all day. And we get to that point and all those guys had to win. Nobody was going to look at me. I mean, Sepp had to win. He had to break the drought. You know, Tom had to win to win record five. 
everybody else had to win. Nobody was expecting me to win. You were teammates at one point with a lot of those guys as well. <laughs> yes, yes, I had been. So, yeah. And, I mean, I guess the other thing that surprises me is I remember thinking, don't get fourth or fifth, don't get fourth or fifth. I want to be on that podium. I want to be on that podium in Roubaix. But you know what? And this is exactly what I was thinking. Like, I was like, okay, Heyman going in. I had a few quid on Boonan, but I was like, everyone's shouting for you. Yeah. you. Like, everyone loves to see an underdog. So I'm kind of conflicted here because my yeah. money's on Boonan, but I'm like, love to see Matt winning. But I remember, I, you'll know the year better than I will. I'm going to say 2011, 2012 was Perry Burgos. You won quite a big field sprint. I was like... Uh, not really. Perry Borges? Perry Borges, yeah. Yeah, I... um. I was actually in an all-day breakaway and got caught with 800 metres to go and won the sprint. <laughs> ah, okay. So it looked like the group was coming up from behind because I remember seeing the highlights of that. Yeah, we got proper caught. Uh, it was raining at the, in the finish and uh, I was away with John Dengenkob and we came out of the last corner and I just thought, oh, well, I've, we've been caught. We got caught in the last corner. And I said, well, I've got no other option but to lead out here. And John was probably quicker than me, um, but he got boxed in by some of the guys in the bunch and the guys in the bunch were just pinned and they couldn't get over us. Um, we'd, we'd just been caught. You know, we were a breakaway uh, of five. No, but, yeah, and as an amateur, I used to, I used to, you know, as an amateur I used to sprint. I used to be really quite fast. I've done some lead-outs in my time. Um, yeah, look, I'm not going to back myself against normally Boas and Hogan and, 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 and Tom Bernan. Um, no, you know. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why. But that attack, you attacked, I think, with 4K to go and 2K to go. Yeah. And at the time, I was thinking, ah, oh, he needs to calm down. That's his podium. Yeah, yeah. Like, Because he can sprint a bit. He's going to get a podium potentially yeah. with the other lads watching each other just following wheels yeah. in the sprint career-defining results on the podium. But yet you went all in. Like, was that a TV attack with 4K to go or was there belief there? There was a bit of, uh, yeah, look, I think, you know, we, we talked about the, the psychology of the sport and, and you know, I felt like in that final I was kind of in the zone. I was kind of doing what we talked about at Sky and what we'd, we'd been through with the sports psychologist there and it's about, you know, not not really making decisions. When you're really in that zone, you're just you're just doing what you think is right. So I wasn't going, should I do this? Or I was just, it felt a bit like just racing guys for a signpost in the town entry, you know, just out for a bunch <laughs> ride. And this is going to sound a bit, because, you know, I've seen the power files and, and they were pretty impressive in the final there. But even those attacks, they weren't kind of full because you're never sure if the next one comes over the top of you, you know, like they were kind of touch up attacks. We were kind of just you're seeing and you're hoping that someone else doesn't react and you get to ride away. You so, went big at 2K to go because you had Boone and other ropes. I didn't realise and it wasn't full. Um, and it's not until I saw the footage back and realised and you don't see Tom rock and roll very often. Yeah, he was he was hurt. He was, yeah, he, yeah. And as I said, look, I, 100% I remember thinking don't get fourth or fifth. But yet when you go into the velodrome with Tom and he says, come on, and you go, no. Somewhere I backed myself. <laughs> somewhere somewhere deep down I backed myself and I let three guys ride back on and they caught us at the bell. So I don't know where that came from and, yeah, that, that was that was something just inside and it wasn't, you know, real clear decision-making. It, it was me just riding on the spur of the moment. Did you hit big power in the sprint or was it a case of you were the least fatigued out of everyone? Yeah, I think I was over 1,000 watts, up around 1,100, somewhere there. Um, I went a bit early but if in doubt, lead out. And I had some... I had some track experience, so I knew where to ride on the track. And, 
you know, it's it's pretty hard to step out and, you know, you always like to hold someone on the hip on a velodrome. Um, you like to get into the sprinter's lane and, you know, I did a lot of track racing as a, as a young kid and if you're in the front and you're in there and, and you've got someone on the sprinter's line and they've got to make those extra metres and they've got to go up and around to get around you. So if you can get in there, in there first, um, you know, in the old days you used to even back them out a little bit and then as soon as they tried to step out, you know, try and hit the power, there was none of that. It was pretty one-dimensional, just get get whatever you could get out. And, and again, it was if I hit out, oh, I hope I don't run third or fourth, you know. So if I hit out, how many guys can come over you? And, and there is that, that rush off the finishing straight normally. Um, but the guys, are, you know, when you're riding with full bar in your tyre and, and you've done 260K, there's not as much rush there's not as much rush off the banking anymore. <laughs> the idea of the domestique is so romantic for anyone listening. It's this like, you know, <laughs> idea of a career of service and servitude and putting others first. But isn't it such an amazing way to tip the cap to because success never happens in a bubble, it never happens in a vacuum. There's, you know, you've had infrastructure of support around you from family to old coaches to friends to parents that backed you through a whole long career. Mm. It must have been just an amazing moment of relief to for everyone involved to just go, that was all worth it. Yeah, yeah, I think everybody knew how much I loved that race and and like George and there's plenty. There's, you know, Magnus, there's, there's Carnarvon and, and there's plenty of guys Leon von Bonn, guys that never won it. Mark uh, Mark Walters, who I raced with for many years. Um, you know, you get super passionate about that race. And then, yeah, it did feel like, you know, you kind of justified and vindicated that whole everything you've ever done uh, on a bike uh, kind of led to that moment um, and, and everybody that helped you do it. Um, and then you, but does it actually? You know, it, it's it's a bike race, and if if that's one thing I'm remembered for, it's it's not a bad thing to be remembered for. Um, but also, you know, just I'm actually pretty proud that I finished every one I started, and I did 17 of them. I'm pretty pretty proud of that as well, and you know, just proud of the 20 year career. But this does cap it off and does give it a pretty extra special shine. Yeah, that's why I didn't want to start the podcast with just talking about Roubaix because your career is much more than that, but every amazing story needs an end to the story. It needs the fairy tale end. And that's why we love it so much. It's a cool build-up. There's likable characters, there's drama, but it ends where the hero gets the girl. (laughs) (laughs) Roubaix. Uh, Matt, it's been brilliant chatting. It's been brilliant uh, recounting and recapturing one of the the iconic moments in cycling history. Uh, Thanks for joining me on the Roadman Podcast. No, thank you. Thank you. It doesn't get old and uh, I don't, I enjoy talking about it. It's, uh, It's pretty special to me. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to sarah at roadmancycling.com.